0: Hey folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. My name is Taylor Amaj. I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. This podcast is a project of Encuentros Latinx, an LGBTQ plus ministry in the United Church of Christ. I want to wish all of our beautiful listeners a happy Latinx Heritage Month. The Colectivo de UCC Latinx Ministries, which is the big umbrella for all Latinx ministry work in the United Church of Christ, is having a special event on October 16th at 4 p.m. Eastern to celebrate Latinx Heritage Month and present our programs to the wider church. I also want to remind you about the pastoral coaching program headed by Encuentros Latinx. You can apply... And get matched with a coach for five free sessions tailored to BIPOC clergy and Eurodescendant clergy looking to foster more inclusive congregations. A recent article on UCC.org highlighted this program, and I want to share what one person had to say about participating. Reverend Inesa Romero in Dallas said, The sessions were true blessings because they helped me to better discern and to gain new perspectives not just about the ordination paper, but about my own calling. I wish I could always reflect about my calling with a coach who understands my history, culture, theology, hopes, and struggles. So if this sounds like something you could benefit from, please apply. Remember, the sessions are completely free, and you'll even get to choose your mentor after you're matched. All right, my guest today is Josue Perea, and in the spirit of Halloween season, we start off with a discussion about death and mortality with a little help from some beloved sci-fi series. Then Josue shares his own experience of the term Latinx and Afro-Latinidad and ties it all into his pastoral and ministry work. Just a friendly reminder that Encuentro Latinx has a racism toolkit that you can download for free and use in your own congregations for racial justice work, and Josue is the author of one of those passages. You'll want to stick around to the end of the show to hear his words, so let's get right into this Encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Can you introduce yourself by giving us your name and pronouns?
1: Yes, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. My name is uh, Gesner Josue Perea. Uh, My pronouns are he, him, his, el in Spanish also. Uh, and Just a pleasure to be
0: here. Wonderful. And what country or countries do you and your family come from?
1: So I was born in Bogotá, Colombia. Bogotá, as as people know or people may or may not know, is the capital of uh, Colombia. Uh, My dad and my mom met there. My mom is from Santander, which is closer to Venezuela in Colombia. And my dad is from Chocó, which is uh, one of the blackest regions of Colombia and is closer to Panama. So they kind of, you know, met at the edge. They're from the like the, the the outlays and they met in the middle and so that's that that's how I was born in Bogota and then I've been here in uh, in Brooklyn, New York um for the last twenty plus years uh, since we migrated emigrated here from Colombia
0: Cool. yeah, I think you are the second or third third I think uh, person from Colombia on the podcast so I have a lot of puerto ricans sometimes that's by design but usually it's not it just it sometimes it seems like everybody is from puerto rico because we have such a massive diaspora but i always love to have other countries represented on the show because i think it's really important to have people from as many different places as possible on a podcast called encuentro satinex you know i i do want to get all every South American, every Central American country, other other places in in the Caribbean as well, so um, really happy to um, to have more uh, colombianos on here yeah. so so what is a good memory that you have about Colombia so it's it, it,
1: so I have a few memories about Colombia. I mean when I was growing up. I think some of the good things that I that I really enjoyed about Colombia was just kind of the sense of family that there that there was. Right. Uh, My family was close. Well, my nuclear family, I would say, was closer to my mom's side of the family just because they all relocated to Bogota. My my nuclear family was not as close to my dad's side of the family at that point in time not because we weren't close, it was just because they mostly lived in Choco. And it was through my dad that a lot of them came to Bogota and asked, and became professionals and everything. So my father was a really big figure for them. And my father just recently passed away. Um, and that was a that, that's actually a really good memory, just kind of touching, you know, when I went back uh, to Colombia to take my father's ashes, kind of reconnecting with the family, kind of reconnecting with my father's side of the family, and just seeing how important those connections were. there are specific traditions in choco colombia where my dad's from uh, funerary rites and funerary traditions that are done for people uh for chocuanos and so it was interesting to hear about what those were and see them in person and kind of be more close to that and that was really because i've done re, i've done research on them right i've, I've mm. done research on afro-colombianidad and 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 issues of afro-latin and kind of traditions but it was different seeing it and, and experiencing it in person, especially contextualizing it to my father, right? And I think that mm-hmm. was really interesting. And so that was a really good thing, right? Just seeing how the the, the, the people take, you know, how the entire town kind of takes ownership of the death of, of of someone who they knew who came out. My dad is from a small town in Chocó Chococo, Bebara. It's a jungle town. And mm-hmm. so just a little town and just seeing how the entire town, kind of mourns was really it was a beautiful thing to see um and yeah and i I think that impacted me a lot just to just to touch just sometimes death can be a separation idea but can also be a unifying idea Mm -hmm. and i think that that for the people in bevara and choco i think that death has more meanings than just the, the departure of someone but it's also a way to kind of reconnect people together and i thought that was really interesting to see, so that that's that's something recently that happened that I think really resonated with me with the culture and everything.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that is a really powerful story, and just death and funerary rites. Th- those things have been on my mind recently, as I've had people that I know either have died, you know, directly recently in in recent weeks and months, or. Somebody I know had a family member or somebody dying like very recently. And even some of the books that I've been reading, uh, this is going to sound like a bit of a weird connection, but I just finished a science fiction series called The Wayfarers Series by Becky Chambers. And um, it's a really fantastic science fiction series. But the, the third book, they're all kind of standalone books that are sort of loosely connected And the third book in particular deals with, uh, it focuses on the human diaspora in space. And one of the characters who you follow in this third book is what's called a caretaker. And she is somebody who deals with the dead and up in space in their situation, they turn the dead into compost. And four years prior to the start of, of the story, there was this massive accident in one of the fleet ships where like a 100,000 people, a lot, a lot of people died. And they're up in space and they have this problem of like, what do we do with all of these bodies? We have never had to deal with this many at a single time. And that combined with how just how the job of caretaker is presented in this book. It is so reverent and so caring. Like this is a book that makes the entire concept of dying and mortality really makes it feel like it's okay in a sense. Like every time I read a Becky Chambers book, she can talk about some really hard and difficult topics, but it feels like, she's hugging you the whole way through. And so I've just been thinking a lot about that. And, and it sounds like, you know, a, a similar type of, of experience where, you know, you had, you saw this whole community come together and there was such care and love for it. And it almost makes the, the separation is, is still a very true and real thing, but maybe it can help to put it, in a wider context or, or to make it, make it so that you can carry forward from that moment because of the, of the beauty and the, and the care around how that is done.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I just actually, while I was in Colombia and right after my father recently passed, I started reading uh, a series too, a science fiction series too by Mm. Octavia Butler called the parable Mm -hmm. of the sower, Mm -hmm. the parable of the talents, which are part of what, it's called the Earthseed series.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: in that, in Earthseed, Earthseed is a religion in, that, in those books. And it talks about the importance of the dead. And they do something similar in that with the dead where they they, they do a little prayer and they say, like, we give the dead back to the earth mm-hmm. so that they might then give us life. So each dead person in the Earthseed tradition is represented by an almond tree, right? Because it's something that will give back to the community mm-hmm. and they've relearned how to use Sorry, acorns in an acorn tree. and The acorn is what eventually they're they're able to reuse it. And I think that it just means a lot. I think it was, you know, reading the earth series and it talks about God being changed and how in the main death, the main thing, idea of it, God is changed. That idea of changing is important to death, right? Like I think sometimes some traditions look at death as this final kind of nail in the coffin situation. Mm-hmm. But I think there are a lot of cultures and that's what I'm noticing you know, just as I'm experiencing the the death of my father and other and other deaths around me as well, I had a mm-hmm. a really close mentor die last year, and death just means it's it's really a change, right? It's a change of something, mm-hmm. right? Something changed, right? Something and 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 changing is constant, and how we deal with that change, and 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 I I wrote something to some friends where I was saying I was think thinking of that idea of God being changed from Earth seed, and also. In the movie, The Two Popes, there's a discussion that the two popes have about, they're like, God it changes. And then one pope is like, God never changes. If God changes, where do we find God? And and the other pope says, on the road, right? We find God mm-hmm. on the journey. And I think that that's really important because I think that through the different changes in life, changes in different situations, that's how we find God and that's how we find change. So I think that's really interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the third book of the Wayfarer series is called Record of a Spaceborn Few and it really, I mean, in addition to the way that it deals with death and birth, it's it's very liturgical without being, I mean, it's not Christian, but it sounds very much like the author projected forward, you know, what this human diaspora civilization would do, but then even some of the structures still sound very similar to you know what Christianity and, and certainly other religions do in terms of how they recognize new when new babies are born and how they how they add those babies to the community and then this this caretaker role and it's it's not even just how they prepare the the bodies and have the funeral services but also the compost itself like there's a oh. there's a special societal sort of, culture or understanding that the caretaker is the only person who can handle the compost that is made from humans because it is something sacred and this it is something to be special and honored and it just uh, i have like a thousand feelings about it i just finished the book last week as of this recording but it's still just like haunting me on a very in a good way but on a, on a deep level where I'm still thinking about it and turning it over in my mind because it is so very existential and spiritual. I think the entire book um, and really a lot of what the Wayfarer series does with many other topics too, but uh, this is not a science fiction uh, <laughs> podcast, even though that would be well, really fun.
1: We could go there, but yes.
0: But. <laughs> so this term Latinx, right? How how is it that you experience or relate to this term? Is it something that you that you claim that you connect with? Is it something that you struggle with?
1: Yeah, so I think I you know I think that for many people the idea of Latinidad or, or a sort of unifying term for a number of nations, right, uh, in different perspectives is complicated, right. The, the term Hispanic, which is related to the term Latinx, is a term that's more linguistically based, right? Mm-hmm. Who speaks a specific dialect or a specific type of Spanish? Because it's not only Spanish, there's different dialects in Spain itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but the main one was Castilian, as we know. And then there's the term Latinx, which, which of course, it's a cultural kind of connection, right? It's not mm-hmm. a linguistic connection, it's a cultural connection. And so I do use the term latinx i use it all I use it pretty regularly. I consider myself an afro latinx afro colombiano when people get specific you know with that, but I just think that there's a lot of unique feelings about that term. I think that and it's relatedly so i think latinx something that people don't know that actually I just found out uh just a few days ago, a friend of mine who does research on the term uh one of the main reasons for the term was as a way of combating white supremacy, right? It was Mm -hmm. just a way to use the term to unify people who were never really included into this, you know, big body of what, or or really small body of what is considered white. Uh, And it was a kind of way to go anti-imperialist, anti-Spain. Let's Mm -hmm. use the term that's not necessarily links us directly to Spain. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because now that, and it it was started by mostly Dominicans uh, who were doing this fight, it's interesting because now the term Latinx has been co-opted also by white supremacy to then exclude people of African descent, people mm-hmm. of indigenous descent, and people of mm-hmm. many different descent that there is in Latinidad. Latinidad, X is a large term, right? It's a pan-ethnic term. It includes mm-hmm. many ethnicities. And just like any pan-ethnic term, it's never really going to capture the nuances of everyone who is Latinx. And so I think we struggle. I think it struggles sometimes. And I think specifically... It's also a very academic term, right? Specifically when we talk about the Latinx perspective. Latin X, when we add the X, uh, is a specifically academic term. There are many different ways in which that term, in which inclusivity has happened within Latino spaces and Latinidad, but Latinx itself is comes from an academic space, comes from an English dominant u.s dominant academic space so then there's complications there like oh the, you know there are people that i know that are like i don't want to be known as latinidad or latinx mm-hmm. or latino or latina i want to be known as mestizo mestiza right and those are people mm-hmm. who think that that's a less racialized term but then there's a lot of complications with that term and mm-hmm. that turns me to a lot more and then there are people specifically in the caribbean who say like we want to be known as afro-caribbean because my mm-hmm. identity is more Caribbean than whatever this hue of Latinx is. So Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to see how that term takes light. I think that's why there are issues with it, right? I, I, I identify because I do think that quoting one of my mentors, Miriam jimenez Roman, who I quoted earlier, who passed away last year, she said, we need a unifying term. We need a unifying name to unify us as a group. And whether it's Latinx, whether, you know, the term Hispanic is less used in the Northeast here. In the Northeast, we use mostly Latino, Latinx, Mm-hmm. latina, latine, those terms, whether that's that term or hispanic or whatever, I think that we just need a unifying term because I think there are all unique especially when we're fighting here in North America and in other places, there are unique needs that our communities have, right? And we mm-hmm. and we and we co- when we cohabitate together. Like, you know, wherever there's a Puerto Rican neighborhood, I live in Sunset Park Brooklyn, and Sunset Park Brooklyn was a first a very Puerto Rican neighborhood, then now it's a very Mexican then now is also other Central American neighborhood that also includes Colombians and Dominicans. Like, it's just mm-hmm. what happens. Like right? we just, the language unites us. There's aspects of the culture that unites us. Um, mm. I would say that one of the things that unites us is our Africanity, right? The fact that mm-hmm. there's a lot of African influence in the culture that sometimes people don't realize. So I think that it is important that it, that, that we use it. Uh, I think that it, you know, for some people, it's a term that, it's difficult, but it is also a term that does good, right? This unification. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of feelings about it, uh, but mm-hmm. I do I do use the term, and I think that is an important term because I do think that as people who have a unique experience, especially in the U.S. and throughout the world, I think that our connections are important. Whether And there are many individualized contexts, right? So like my experience mm-hmm. as a Colombian in New York is different than uh, someone who is Puerto Rican in New York, than someone who is mm-hmm. Peruvian in New York. Mm-hmm. but there are connections that we can make. And I think that it's important to highlight those. And so that's why I prefer. I do use the term Latinx more specifically Afro Latinx or Afro Colombiano mm-hmm. or Afro. So those are the terms that I use, but yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of that is, is very well said. And I, I think that some of the resistance to using Latinx definitely does come from this idea of, Oh, it's English colonizing Spanish. And this sense of like we already have this term we, we're already all Latinos and that's how the Spanish language works in terms of its grammar rules and how the the collective noun has to be you know the plural male form if there's if it's a mixed group even if there's only one man in a room of a million women and i think that you know on on the one hand there to two ends of the, or two extremes on, on the end. There's those who are completely resistant to it, who who don't bother to learn about where this term actually came from. And so there is this perpetuation of, of a narrative that I see that some people believe that Latinx is something that white people made up and that it's being sort of enforced upon, you know, upon the community. And then on the on the other end, which is most mostly where my bubble is of people who just use the term and embrace it, I, I sometimes see people who are so reactionary against those who struggle with the term from that other side that I sometimes I get a little bit concerned that there can't be um, like a genuine dialogue. And a lot of this I'm seeing on Twitter, and Twitter is just not usually a good place to <laughs> to have nuanced conversations for the most part. But I do think it is important to, you know, as as much as I am totally with you in terms of using Latinx as a term, I'm also totally with you in all of the shortfalls that you mentioned about how it is a greater attempt to have something to name the entire community. But there's still a lot to grapple with. And one essay that I just keep coming back to that grounds me is the, the essay by Alan Peleas Lopez. Um, I think I'm getting their name. Maybe I'm not saying their name quite correctly. I don't remember it off the top of my head, even though I've mentioned it like four times on this podcast, I should know it by now, but anyway, (laughs) it's, it's called the X in Latinx is a wound, not a trend. And it, it presents, this way of understanding the X using sort of these four different aspects or axes. And I think that grounding the usage of of that term in work like that certainly adds the nuance that I think we we need to have. Because, I mean, especially as, as you said, the, the historic and current anti-Blackness in, in Latinidad and how that, I mean, folks have been, You know have had experiences where you know they're like hey like yes i'm i'm latino i'm i'm latina and then the community of of latinos is like no you're not you're 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 black like there's like this erasure of of that that sort of you know i don't i find that really problematic um and and that is certainly part of the history And, and i've i've spoken to Folks, to to black folks who are also, you know, from Central America or South America, or, or um, they could be from the Dominican Republic or um, or any other place in the Caribbean, where they could use the term Latinx, but they don't specifically because of I don't I don't know I don't think it's resistance to Latinx specifically I th- but I think it is sort of a way of keeping a sense of of identity against something that has been not opened to them that they have been excluded from and so that's why i always love to have this conversation with everybody who comes on on the podcast about this term because there is so much to it and and people have very different ways of entering into what this term this experience really is and it's important i think to to grapple with that
1: yeah you you just mentioned something experience but I just want to go back to something you said I think it's mm-hmm. important so see the term let, let, let's go let's just start the term latin right was used mm-hmm. in the 16th and 70s by people like the young lords and groups who were a, as a more progressive way to respond to Spain right to the mm-hmm. to kind of like hispanic really refers to a language so therefore, it refers to Spain. It excludes like people like Brazil, like a country like mm-hmm. Brazil, right, which is considered part of Latin America. Mm-hmm. But the term Latin, Latino, Latina, Latinx, these terms have always included also the U.S. Because mm-hmm. then it's it's not only about the Caribbean, Central, and South America. It's also about, mm-hmm. or this, let's say, let's say the Spanish speaking Caribbean, Central, and South mm-hmm. America. But it's also about the, the, the Latin American diaspora and what we call the Latino in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. And so that term started with that. And I think that many decades, it, it, that was the term, right? And then I think mm-hmm. Latinx kind of came as a newer term, right? It's a five, 10-year-old mm-hmm. term. It's not that mm-hmm. old of a term. And so it is it, it is interesting because I think that within Latin American and Latino, Latina, Latinx, political, social, progressive movements, there's always been a way of inclusivity, right? Like we had the uh, one of the organizations that i represent is the afro latino afro latina forum and we ha- used the at sign and mm-hmm. and the at sign was a way that's that that people were doing inclusivity at that point right mm-hmm. there's also Latine, right? adding mm-hmm. the e instead mm-hmm. of the the race the, the genderizing of a or o mm-hmm. and i think those things but one of my one someone i know um ed morales he's a he's a writer for the new york times he's also a, a professor he's a journalist he says that for him the latinx feels a little technocratic it feels like it's something being imposed on someone else Mm -hmm. not being more embraced by the community which us it's unlike latin latino latina and that has to do with the x idea the x has a connection to america specifically right to the u.s Mm -hmm. specifically not to the american continent so it's so it's a really interesting I, i do think that there's just debates and i think that we do have issues with that especially when we talk about Afro Latinidad and Afro mm-hmm. Latinxes and Afro Latinos, Latinas, Latines, that we have this way of having to have been represented, right? Which mm-hmm. I think that the term that the that using Latino Latinx Latina does a little bit better, right? So only in that, only in this, in that I can say I am Afro-Latinx and people understand what that means. Oh, mm-hmm. that means that you're that you have some blackness and you have some sort of Latin American connection mm-hmm. or some sort, right? I think that what we want to do eventually is expand those things so that people, so that we don't have to say like, what we would ultimately go to is that I don't have to say Latino and have to highlight Latinx and say, Oh, I, I'm Afro Latinx. I think mm-hmm. that what people would want is I understand that Latinx includes people of African descent, people mm-hmm. of, of indigenous descent, people of different descent, but because mm-hmm. of the, the influence of white supremacy and the influence of, of all of those things, it's difficult to do that. I think though, that it is important to have something that unites. It's a problem, but I think that it's never going to be a thing because I think that no one likes to group everything together, right? So, for mm-hmm. example, let's just say, like, people always talk about America, but America is really a continent that's mm-hmm. really difficult. So, like, yes, in certain contexts, America means the U.S., but in mm-hmm. other contexts, America means the entire continent. So, mm-hmm. Latin Americans, for example, we always say, like, well, don't call it just America, call it the mm-hmm. U.S., then mm-hmm. African-Americans, as we know, I've said, well, I want to be specifically known as African-American, that, yeah, I'm American, but I'm African-American. I think whenever there's any sort of encompassing term that is a pan, pan-ethnic pan term, I think mm-hmm. that people struggle. I think the same thing could, could be said about Arabs. One of mm-hmm. the articles that I was in a, a part of a while ago was when we were trying to do the census in 2010, not this recent census, but the one in 2010, uh, we had the Afro latino Afro Latina Forum. We were working together with different organizations, and one of them was an Arab organization that had the same situation. We wanted we we launched some campaigns for people to check both that I'm black, uh, black and Hispanic Latino mm-hmm. Latinos, right? Check both. Mm-hmm. They had a similar campaign. They had a writing campaign. They're like, don't write white. Write that you're Arab and then mm-hmm. within arab there's different things there's afro arabs there's different connections there because arab again it's a ling- linguistic term right so mm-hmm. i think that that's what happens with any of these pan ethnic kind of just all encompassing terms i think that we're never going to be able to 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 highlight those specific things but i think we do like to highlight i would say within the afro latino afro descendant community mm-hmm. that that speaks spanish that that is a lived experience right that has mm-hmm. been around for a long time it's not just something that Just came up because the term Afro Latinx just started. I remember last summer writing a piece, uh, a different piece than the one that I wrote here. Writing a piece, it was a big discussion. Like, well, when did this term start? And I had to say, like, I can't give you a date. There's no Mm -hmm. date when it started, but it's a lived experience that I can trace. I can trace Mm -hmm. the experience to as far back as uh, San Martin de Porres, right? One of the saints, uh, one of the Catholic saints in the world. He's one of the few black saints in the world he's afro-latin he would be considered afro-latino right mm-hmm. we can trace that one of the first person who landed in new york city for example is this Af- who he would consider afro-latino and his name is jan rodriguez he was a a, a man of african descent some sort of dutch connection and some sort of the Domin- what now we know as dominican republic connection so i can trace these things i can't trace mm-hmm. the term right and so yes mm-hmm. it's anachronistic to say like well Saint martin de porres referred to him as afro as an afro latino no he didn't re- refer to himself as that but he was an afro latino his experience encompasses that of afro latinidad Jan rodriguez here in new york who was the def- who came before any enslaved africans uh is a black man who can trace his experience to afro latinidad and so mm-hmm. i think that these are those interesting ideas of recognizing that it is a lived experience right that it's a mm-hmm. lived experience more so than it is a a specific term that starts at the time. And I would say that for Latinidad, Latinx, I think is the same. It's similar, right? It's mm-hmm. a lived experience that we can track to a certain mm-hmm. point of time. When was whatever term? We can track the term, 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. But the lived experience part is really what connects a lot of people together. So I think that's important to highlight.
0: Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of, of really good points. And it's particularly interesting And I think a good way to think about any terminology for any group, I mean, we can even start getting into newer pronouns and newer ways of talking about uh, sexuality, these terms that have emerged, right? In, In our modern day right now that did not exist several generations ago, but this language helps to clarify experiences that have always been true and lived and and things that people go through it's just that society didn't yet reach a point where that language emerged it's like i had this image of like this is really cliched but just a a plant that is sprouting right like the the roots have always been there but then the sprout comes above ground and then it, it flowers. And then you can start to say like, Oh, that's this kind of flower or that's, you know, as opposed to, I don't know, I don't know how far this metaphor is going to work. I'm just kind of (laughs) taking it off the cuff, but as opposed to, you know, the, the farmer or the gardener saying like looking at the seed that hasn't sprouted yet, just holding it in their, in their hand and, you know, putting it in the ground and said, this is going to be, this is going to be a rose and, you know but it might not be a rose when it grows it could it could be something else and there's probably a clearer way to say it I'm sure if I actually sat with it <laughs> for a while and, and thought through I could I could come up with it but um, but I think that's the beautiful thing in general about language and the empowering thing about language is that especially when it's terminology that comes from the communities themselves because there also definitely is terminology that has been enforced upon groups, that is not how at all how they would refer to themselves, and and so then we have this other need of, of communities coming up with their own terms and reclaiming terms in in certain cases and things like that. But uh, but the evolution of, of language language is alive and screw grammar rules. You know, I'm thinking about like using they as a singular pronoun, or, or even some of these newer pronoun sets that folks are coming into, or terms like Latinx, or who, who knows what other terms might be cropping up. To me, this is just a result of people in these communities themselves, people living these experiences themselves, using language and evolving language themselves um, and I think that that is something that should be should be honored and and should be celebrated, even though it absolutely is a challenge to, like you said, be like, OK, what's what's going to be the the term that we're going to use collectively that we can tell book publishers and you know newspaper articles that need to have style guides for what the right word is. And there there's all, all of those all of those challenges. But at the end of the day. You know, human beings are alive and language is alive. And if we if we enforce dead language rules or or old old grammar rules onto people where it's just not working anymore for the sake of proper grammar or or whatever, then you know, it's like, what's the point? And I say this as I, I have a degree in English creative writing. I'm an author, like I know words and I think about words a lot. And so and anytime I run into you know, super strict grammar people that are like, oh, such grammar, but, but grammar. And I'm like, well, okay, but how about, I think the people that are actually using the language are more important than the grammar rule.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think, I think that's, I think that's a good point. I think that there are terminologies that come from people, right? From the communities themselves. Right. So Mm -hmm. like, for example, there was just a new version of the New Testament that was just released called the First Nations version of the New Testament, which I used in a Mm -hmm. sermon last week. It was a really beautiful version. And when I read that, they, they said the First Nations, many Native, uh, what we what people call Native Americans, First Nations is more a Canadian term, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're like, no, many people, many more First Nations people, Natives, Indigenous people around the world are embracing that term First Nations. So mm-hmm. that's why they wanted to call it the First Nations version. I think mm-hmm. there are things like that, right? Where something, mm-hmm. a community takes it. I think there, there are things that we don't know enough, right? So like the term Latin, Mm-hmm. was a term used by the French to designate non-English and non-Dutch speaking colonies, right? So it was like, oh, everyone who's non-English and non-Dutch is Latin. And then that mm-hmm. became and then that got erased and people forgot and then it came back. Same thing with the term Africa, for example, for the continent. That's not original to the people. It is a term that the Romans gave to the continent, right? It was a way to mm-hmm. designate Africa. Oh, everything Egypt and below. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then, but then, yeah, people then take some of those terms, just like the word Christian, as we know, in in mm-hmm. the history of the church, the word Christian was a word made to make fun of Christians. And then we're like, wait, I'm going to take that term. Thank you for giving mm-hmm. me language for it. So I think that that's what it is. I just think that labeling, and I'm not saying this specifically, specifically I just think overall, mm-hmm. I think labeling it's always difficult because we're never going to get to a specific label, right? Like mm-hmm. to a very correct label. Like I, would say that I'm Colombian-American or whatever. Mm-hmm. But Colombians would say that I'm not. They would call me gringo. They call me gringo. Oh, you, you've been in the States too long. You're now mm-hmm. gringo, right? So like, mm-hmm. so it's just, I think that that's what happens, right? Semantic shift happens, which I think is what you're talking about. People mm-hmm. shift a community shift and term shift and language shift. And then just identities are, like fluctuate, right? Things mm-hmm. fluctuate, meanings fluctuate. At one point in time, African-Americans in this country were known as Negroes and Mm -hmm. then colored and now African-American, right? And so Mm -hmm. there's uh, evolution, right? There was a point in time in the 70s where the term Chicano was much wider used than it is now, for example, Mm -hmm. Mexican-American. So I think all of these things are interesting and I think it just adds to the layer of representation. But I think that overall, what what I like to think is that we just have to embrace people for who they are, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone is... People, everyone is made in the Imago day, right? Everyone has this mm-hmm. image of God. And so what does that mean? How does that play out? That means that me and my Afro-Colombian self, who is very proudly Brooklyn, but also really loves Bogota, it's that's fine. All of that is fine. Mm-hmm. And I can listen to Bajanato and hip hop at the same time and find similarities between them that mm-hmm. might be unique to me or maybe not. And maybe for you is different and for someone else is different. I think Mm -hmm. that embracing these things, and I do agree with you on like language rules, like we don't have to stick to those things Mm -hmm. because language is made used by the communities that use them. And so Mm -hmm. I think that that's a really important point. But I think it's just, I think it's just that we need terminology, not only because it's labeled, but we need terminology that unites us, right? Mm -hmm. Christians at first didn't like that term Christian. And then some people Mm -hmm. did. And now most people use it. And so like, it's just, you know, it's, I think that's just what happens over
0: time. Mm-hmm. Taking this conversation to, to Christianity. I mean, I think, you know, when I was younger, I was brought up in my middle school and high school years in a contemporary evangelical, you know, mostly white type of, of church situation. And I remember that the language in those cultures at that time and you know maybe still now is we didn't really say christian we said follower of jesus we said believer and it was this attempt to yeah. to say we're not like those christians those stuffy christians that you remember or you know and, and and then i also i mean now in my adult life more or less on on the other end of having done a lot of deconstruction Sometimes I see it in very progressive Christian or Christian adjacent spaces where they're like, you know, not really wanting to claim the label of Christian because of the way that Christianity has been co-opted by white supremacy and by so many um, awful powers in in this country. And I think I, I get that temptation to some extent, but also I agree with this point that I've seen different people make of of like, look, you have to recognize or like we progressive Christians have to recognize that we are Christian and so are the people who stormed the Capitol. I want to look at, you know, all this alt-right stuff that claims that uses the language of Christianity. And I want to, I really want to say like, that is a corruption of my faith and how dare that exists and how dare that happen. But at the end of the day... Christianity is still a tool of white supremacy. And I think that sometimes by not choosing the collective term, so to speak, it could provide people sort of an escape to not confront that and to not deal with that and and be like, yeah, this same religion that I have, this same label that, that I have, and that, you know, I would never do X, Y, and Z, but there are, there are also these people over here. It's the, it's the same label. They are invoking the same names and they're doing all of this stuff. And like, what are we going to do with that? So. Yeah.
1: I, I think in the, in the earthy series, the, the book that I mentioned to you by a Butler, the mm-hmm. two books the, one of the groups is a very alt-right like group Christian group called the Christian Americans, Christian Amer, Yeah. C a Christian mm-hmm. American. And yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that we do have to claim, I, I teach a course on, on history of the christian church um for a bible institute here in brooklyn uh and one in queens and and yeah and i always say we have to embrace all aspects of our faith like even if it's people that we disagree with right like and i think that we have to do that i think that that others have to do that as well like you know people may or may not know that nazis would expel jews in the name of christianity sometimes in the name of carrying jesus who himself was a jew as like a name like oh, well, this is what Martin Luther told us. Martin Luther wrote a very damaging book called The Jews and Their Lives, which was mm. used by the Nazi party to to kind of ground what they were doing, right? And and it, we do have to embrace these ugly aspects of the faith, right? They're just ugly aspects of our faith, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And yeah, I can claim that, yeah, I'm not like the Christian Americans in the, in the Octavia Butler book, and I'm not like the people who were praying while they were storming the Capitol and, and thanking God for that. I'm not like that. We have different interpretations of the faith, but that they're considered Christian and that we're in the same tree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, unfortunately that's how that works. And I think it's about reclaiming and loving the other. And these ideas that we have, I think sometimes we think loving the other is loving the oppressed and yes, that's what it is. But I think Mm -hmm. for those of us who are progressive, who do that, loving the other is that like I've, I've said one time in a sermon that I preached, I said for us, the parable of the good Samaritan, the good Samaritan is not, a Muslim person, because we that we, we we're fine, we expect that. For mm-hmm. us, it might be a white supremacist who becomes mm-hmm. a good Samaritan. How do we feel that, that 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 person is the one who took care of him more than someone else? And I think that you know when we start realizing that those are the connections we have to make, it to get it does cause conflicts in our faith. But I think it's just because we have to understand that I think our faith is not perfect. We don't have a perfect. You know, church that looks specifically one way, and that everyone agrees. And no, it's 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 a human institution that has many human perspectives, many human rationales, and like with any human situation, there's going to be disagreements and everything. So, yeah, I think you bring up a good point that. We have to embrace the entirety of the of, of, of Christendom, right? Which is a term mm-hmm. that may or may not be a good term, right? That refers to, but mm-hmm. the entirety of Christianity, mm-hmm. including those offshoots that we may not want to represent. Like I don't agree with with some, with a lot of those people, but you know what? They're my brother and sister in Christ somehow, and so I have to keep mm-hmm. keep you know praying for them and including them and loving them and all that. So I I think you're right.
0: Yeah, and it's way way easier said than 100%. done. Uh, but I, I do want to dive more into like your personal experiences with spirituality and religion and how that has intersected with your identity throughout your life.
1: Yeah. So when I think about that, I think about being Afro-Latino, Afro-Colombian, Afro-Latinx and being Christian. And I think about how I've traversed certain Christian spaces. Like I grew up in Pentecostal, right? in my youth, I grew up in Tocasso. And so, yeah, my Colombianness, let's say, mi Colombianidad wasn't specifically highlighted, but my being black was, right? And so like, Mm -hmm. it was something that united me with the Dominicans and Puerto Ricans and those people around me who looked like me, who had similar complexion like me. And so I think about that and I think about like when we came to the US, my family now migrated to the US, we immigrated here because my father was offered to pastor a South American congregation. I am sure that the South American congregation didn't expect that their South American pastor was going to be this very visibly black man. Or maybe they did. I don't know. I'm just assuming just based on percentages of immigration in New York, the immigration numbers for black Colombians is much lower than for non-black Colombians. Hmm. So I'm sure that they didn't expect that, but... They, my father was a bright man and a very smart man, and so they embraced him, right, and they embraced us. But there was always different tensions that my father experienced. My father experienced racism here in this country, um, sometimes by members who are Latinos, not mm-hmm. members of the congregation, but just a cab driver who was Latino, uh, a, a, a store owner who was Latino who may have said something to him. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's just interesting because I think that sometimes within Christian spaces, Blackness gets subdued, right? It's like this way to de-emphasize Blackness. And I specifically think about just the connections of like, just kind of this idea that we're Christian, therefore we don't have any specific cultural uh, group or cultural kind of identity. But I do think that Black Latinos and Afro-Latinos, afro Latinexes, afro Black mm-hmm. Colombians and Afro-Colombians like myself, when we traverse spaces of Churches is that we're already traversing multiple worlds, we're already inhabiting different identities. Right? W.B. Du Bois writes something called double consciousness. Right? For a black person in the U.S., he says that we they both have to wrestle with being black and being of the U.S., and those mm-hmm. two things come into consciousness. Uh, another um, researcher, Eduardo Bonilla Silva. Uh, a researcher, a Puerto Rican researcher, he says about a triple consciousness for Latinos. He says, we have to struggle mm-hmm. with being black. We have to struggle with being in the U.S. or of the U.S., whatever that looks mm-hmm. like. And we have to struggle being Latinos, mm-hmm. That We have to struggle with that. And I would add that for Christian Black Latinos, it's like mm-hmm. a fourth thing. It's like, how do I express my Christianity while being connected to my Blackness and who I am, while being connected to my Latinidad and, and my Latinx identity, while being connected to being in this country, right? And I think that those are different, those are these ways in which we have to traverse these spaces. And I think that that is an initial thing that impacted my, 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 my identity, that, I already have to inhabit multiple worlds and understand different identities. So I think that makes it easier for us, I would say. Maybe I'm going to speak for me. Let me not generalize. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, it makes it easier to embrace kind of tensions, right? Like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. I'm Christian and I'm also this and I'm also that and I also this. So I think for me, whenever I hear like a way to embrace someone who's trans or someone who's whatever, I don't think I have as much issues because I already live in multiple spaces. So it's like, Oh, yeah. So that person, yes, we Mm -hmm. can add them to the list, too. Let's add them to the list. Like, yes, there's a way there's room for them. And I think that that is something that is emphasized. I mentioned um, St. Martin de Porres. And, for example, St. Martin de Porres' life experience was like that. He was born to a Spanish father to an enslaved woman in Peru. He was born in Panama uh, well, by then was Colombia. He was born and had to move and all these. So he already inhabited many different spaces. He wanted to sell himself as an enslaved person for his monastery. So I, I just think the Afro-Latin, Afro-Latinx experience just does that, right? Arturo Alfonso Schomburg, who is considered one of the founders of Black Studies and Afro-Latinidad and all of those things, he was... I mean, his name is Schomburg, so he has some German within him, but he was born in, in Puerto Rico, but he grew up in Harlem around Jamaicans and, quarter, and Puerto Ricans. And so there's just these spaces that we traverse. And I think when I think about it in a spiritual sense, especially within my own Christianity, I think that it it, it allows me to embrace kind of more identities and, and just embrace a, a, a theology that's much more inclusive, I would say. I'm not saying that others can't. I just think that it it allows me to see it, easier right i have a connection i think we people in uh, in the african diaspora have a connection that goes past present future right i like to call that sometimes the church eternal we the church is connected to christians are connected to christians past present and future christians who are going to come before us came after us uh that are going to come after us came before us and, and so on and so forth and i think within blackness there's the same idea right the same idea that is that there's this connection to like past present future and these kind of connections that are made so i feel like those are some of the specific things that we that we emphasize i also feel that it's easier for me to decentralize power right to understand the decentralization of power because my own identity had to be decent was decentralized but then when but then i wanted to centralize and and i think it's just understanding kind of that i think just being Afro-Latino, afro Colombian, in certain spaces allows me to be like, yep, power needs to be centralized and needs to be more diverse, needs to be more spread out. So I think I can keep saying that I don't want to keep rambling, but I think <laughs> that there are just a lot of different points where I see that my identity has helped me understand certain things. And I actually want to, you know, part of something that I did with the UCC was, was something in Afro-Latino, Afro-Latinidad and spirituality. And it's something that I'm slowly developing into like a little project of like what are specific connections of like Afro Latino, Afro Latina, Afro Latinx spirituality and Christianity that are unique to Afro Latinidad? Mm-hmm. In addition to just contributing to the entire conversation of the church as a whole. So mm-hmm. yeah, I can keep going, but that. I think <laughs> that's <a good>
0: <laughs> well, that that's awesome. That's actually a, a great segue too into more of the work that you're currently doing. So you mentioned some of the some of these projects, and and you've given this great sense of your own decentralized identity and so how does that then lead into the important work that you're doing now and why it is fulfilling and important to you
1: yeah I think I think that that is just for me this uniqueness of being Afro-Colombian in New York I had a very unique experience which some of it is highlighted in the piece but like I grew up in New York for about a year and then i was moved just me from my family not with my siblings just me with some relatives in new jersey which was a really different situation than washington heights i started watching the heights so i'm around all these dominicans and puerto ricans and at that point cubans there were a lot of them that looked like me and so that's fine and then i go to hackettstown new jersey which at that point had no one who looked like me and i think there were like four kids of color in my school four not four mm-hmm. like four right um And so that was a whole different thing. And I think it has allowed me to kind of gain an understanding of different, of of just unique perspectives. So like, for example, I think that service-orientedness that I have is rooted Partly in my Christianity, partly in my understanding of who I am as a black person, but also my concern for justice is not only rooted in, in my Christianity, it's also, it, my Christianity is also rooted in my being black and wanting to see justice done to everyone in the right way. Because justice, as as Dr. Colonel Wells says, is love seen in public, right? There are many different ways. That, that happens, so I think there are unique aspects of my identity that have allowed me to do that. So, yeah, I'm doing a few things. Uh, I'm an associate pastor at the church that I attend to and lead with, uh, called um, Metro Hope Church. Uh, Metro Hope Church is a is a church that actually right now we're we're in the process of joining, of becoming part of the larger DCC UCC uh, connection. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're in the process of that. And I lead contemplative practices and liturgy for the church, which has been something really important for me, that it's another thing that I'm able to embrace kind of contemplative practices, because that is something within our traditions that has sometimes been whitewashed, right? It's like, no, 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 contemplation is only something done European, but actually some of the Mm -hmm. first contemplatives were African, were Northern African, and they were doing some of these practices to kind of mirror or imitate some of the things that they've seen in the East. Uh, yeah, and that, that has allowed me to connect to this this uh, uh, contemplative ecumenical contemplative community called the community of the Incarnation. It's a contemplative com- uh, community uh, that's ecumenical. So we have Catholics and people from different denominations there, uh, of different Protestant denominations uh, there. and it's really interesting and it's a way to kind of engage and embrace that and, and, and part of that is it, it helps me lead some of the contemplative work that I do with my own, in my own congregation. And then, and then, aside from that, I do. I am currently the director of the Afro Latino for Latina Forum, which is a nonprofit that finds uh, that that works to uh, to talk about blackness and Latinidad in the U.S. specifically, but also as it connects to Latin America. So, some of the work that I do here, I do with with the forum, and I'm also currently working with some friends of uh, more tied to the Methodist Church, uh, but they it's something called the Hispanic Youth Leadership Academy. Uh, And we're working on a podcast called Las Caras Lindas. Las Caras Mm -hmm. Lindas is a reference to a song by a Puerto Rican uh, musician named Ismael Miranda. He wrote a song Mm -hmm. talking about blackness in Puerto Rico. And he called it Las Caras Lindas, which in English translates to beautiful faces. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we're working on a podcast and we're going to release the first teaser uh, for Hispanic Heritage Month at some point. uh, And then continuing a monthly podcast kind of in 2022. Uh, So that work goes on. But one of the things that recently just happened is I I became uh, part of the initial cohort of something with Sojourners called the Rising Leaders Fellowship, which is going to allow me to kind of further develop this Afro-Latino Christianity, Afro-Latinidad Spirituality Project, which I have in mind. And so there's some exciting things that are happening that I'm doing some work on to kind of just, because my main emphasis is to make sure that within Latino, Latina, Latinx spaces, within, within spaces of of christianity that there's that there's an embracing of everyone and who they are right and so we've seen that in different things in the synod there were many different ways in which people were included and i was happy to participate in the synod this year but there were just different ways and i think that we become the body much more when we emphasize who everyone is instead of trying to have everyone become one homogenized kind of uniform group i think when we highlight uniqueness when we highlight kind of the different parts of everyone we become a stronger body and that's part of my mission overall i think specifically within christian latino latinx spaces there's a lack of inclusion or contribution of afro-latino afro-latinidad afro-latinx conversations and also just a uniqueness of afro-latinx kind of experience i think most of the christian latinx spaces and christian latino latina spaces have been more dominated by kind of mestizaje this idea of you know what is mis mistranslated as mixture. Mestiza mm-hmm. doesn't mean mixture. It's really a specific type of people that are considered mestizos. I would never be considered a mestizo. And so like so I think those spaces lack and I think we need more voices of of people of African descent, of people of indigenous descent, of mm-hmm. people of Asian. There's a lot of Asian Latinos that don't get highlighted mm-hmm. that right. need to be included. And I think that sometimes that's really important because I think it, it's gonna problematize but for a good way kind of this cosmological rainbow idea of, of, of Latinidad. I think that it is a, a, a united idea of Latin and being Latinx is a united idea, but I think that we have to highlight specific experiences. And I mm-hmm. think that's part of what I like to do. Um, so yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. And so with all of this great stuff that you're doing and all this great stuff that you have coming up, how can people keep up with you like on social media or anywhere uh, that folks can get updates on this stuff?
1: I'm really bad at some social media. Well, I have to get better back at it. But I uh, the forum, there's a lot of work, exciting work that we're gonna do with the Afro Latino Forum. The website for that is AfrolatinoForum.org or Afro Latinex Forum.org or Afro dot Forum.org. <laughs> it's all of those. Uh for the podcast, Las Caras Lindas, it's also Lascaraslindas.org. Uh we just actually did the website like over the last two days. So Las Caras org is where the podcast is gonna be. We're just doing a teaser now. Um, and eventually we're going to launch it into a longer discussion. And I think I, I have to be more active on Instagram. So my Instagram is at guestnerth, which is my first name. I have a weird, for it's not weird, it's my unique mm-hmm. first name. It's a Welsh name and a German spelling. I have mm-hmm. no Welsh or German in my background, but it's what my dad liked. And so at guestnerth. And so those are the places where we can find, um, I would say the website for the forum and, and, and Las Caras Lindas to see more about those projects. I think soon in time, I'm going to have some, Something on the, as I develop the idea of Afro-Latinidad and Christianity, Afro-Latinidad and spirituality, uh, as part of the Rising Leaders Fellowship, I think as that develops, there's going to be something on that. So I guess follow me on Instagram, even though I don't use it. There's like two posts. I'll post more. um, But yeah, but those are the places where you could get information.
0: Awesome. And one of the things that you were involved in is uh, you contributed a piece to one of the toolkits that Encuentros Satinex has developed. And I would love for you now to read your own words and share your own story.
1: Yes. Great. Thank you. So the title of the piece is actually the first sentence of the piece, just to clarify, because I saw that that the title of the piece was turned into the first sentence. Uh, what the first sentence was turned into the title but the, the it's part of the the reading of the of the of the piece latine who is latine what does it mean to be latine and even afro latine the answer to these questions is likely varied and informed by what we see in popular media but the reality is that the likelihood of someone imagining a person who is afro latine someone who is both Black and Latina as a representative of Latinidad is not customary. And therein lies one of the problems. They inherit anti-Blackness of Latinidad. And the inherent anti-Blackness that Latinidad sadly continues to espouse today, especially since Afro-Latinas are people of African descent in Mexico, Central and South America, and the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, and by extension, those of African descent in the United States, whose origins are in Latin America and the Caribbean. I remember when it began for me, when this understanding of being Latina began for me. I was 10 years old. My family and I had emigrated to the United States from Colombia and lived in Washington Heights, a mostly Dominican and Puerto Rican neighborhood in Manhattan, New York City. And it was through the many Latina kids that I met while in school that I realized I was part of a larger community of Latines, it was something kind of intuitive. In Bogota, where I was born and raised until I came to the US, I had met children from other countries and realized that I was connected to them through experiences, custom, and traditions. Now, I always understood that as a Colombian boy, I was connected to a broader group of people, which in this country I came to know as Latinidad. It was in Washington Heights where I learned new words in Spanish and started to see that my speaking Spanish was something that connected me to myself, my family, and countless others. Hackettstown, a small town in central New Jersey, though reminded me of another important part of my identity. It was the second or third week of school, I knew very little English, and some of the boys in my sixth grade class invited me to play a game of American football. I had never played football before, my team won, I don't really know how, but according to one of the boys from the losing team, you only won because you have the nigger on your team. Me, not knowing any English or any of the customs of this new place, could not understand why a fight suddenly broke out amongst the boys with whom I played. I was the only student of color in my sixth grade class, and one of the boys came and apologized to me for what had been said, quote, we are not all like that, end quote he assured me. I didn't know it then because I didn't understand English, but what triggered the fight between the white boys in my class was the word nigger and everything that it has come to mean historically in the United States. Not only did I certainly learn English very quickly then, but that's where I began to understand myself as holding multiple identities, not only as a Colombian boy, as a Latino boy, but also as a Black boy, as an Afro-Latino boy. Now, I didn't grow up with the term Afro-Latino being spoken in my household, but my parents always taught us to be proud of how God made us. My dad from Choco, Colombia, always emphasized that our Blackness matters and made us even more special. That's what I heard when I first heard the term Afro-Latine, that my experience matters. Latinidad is a pan-ethnic term one that includes a variety of ethnic and social groups, including a large segment of the Latina population that is of African descent. But we fail to grasp a more holistic understanding of Latinidad because of a limited understanding of what it means to be Latine. The issue with anti-Blackness in a Latine context is that the influence, importance, and relevance of African traditions are so embedded within Latina culture that they cannot be ignored. Food in Latina communities, especially those of the Caribbean, are very similar to other African diasporic cuisines. For example, mofongo, sancocho, arroz con gandules, and many more. Musical traditions from all over Latin America are specifically influenced and centered on traditions that have their roots in various parts of the African continent. For example, cumbia, bomba, merengue, salsa, and tango. As the Latina population continues to grow in the United States, so does the propensity to bring anti-Black sentiments. We as ministers need to disrupt any anti-Black sentiments, challenging our Latina laity, or non-Latine membership, by upholding biblical values that emphasize inclusion and acceptance of all members of God's beautiful creation. As Paul reminds the Galatians, each one of you is a child of God. In Christ, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave or citizen, male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 28. What we have to do is challenge the ideas of erasure and racism. We need to remind everyone that every single person is made in the image of God. We need to be more inclusive when we talk about latines and try to emphasize the diverse experiences that the Latina community contains. We can begin by challenging the popular imagery of Latinidad that excludes black and indigenous representation. Lastly, we should not foment or further support ideas that throw Latinas in a Black versus Brown dichotomy, whether these ideas are within our own congregations or in popular culture. Our goal as ministers and followers of Christ is to create spaces where everyone feels included and affirmed, by understanding other cultures and traditions, by recognizing the fullness of diversity of these culture groups, Latinas in this case, We will ensure that the word of God is well received because all listeners feel heard, welcomed, represented, and acknowledged. For many Latina parishioners, this will also be a step forward in their spiritual journey to self-love, to see themselves in the craft of image-bearing, contributing to what is good, true, and beautiful in the world. Together, the beloved church community can strive to achieve what Paul admonished the Romans, to accept one another as Christ has accepted us, Romans 15, 17. This is the aspiration and the hope of a church that embraces members of every tribe, nation, and tongue. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And for the folks listening, you can find the toolkits on ucc.org, search for Encuentros Latinx, and then you'll find a page where you can download this resource and you can use this toolkit in your own congregations as a beginning point for having conversations around anti-racism. So Josue, thank you so much for this conversation and for sharing your story. It's been fantastic.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, Taylor, and thank you to everyone. It's been a pleasure uh, to share, to converse, to discuss. And I look forward to everything that Encuentro Latinx doing.
0: Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. On behalf of Encuentros Latinx, we hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.